Welcome to No Baller. My name is Chris Rawl. It is Tuesday, June 8th. On today's show, a discussion of Bucks Nets and the overwhelming star power on display. This show is now available via an app that you can download on anything that your heart desires. You search for the Beehive TV. You can go, you can download it, it's free, and you can get anything that I do with No Baller right there at your fingertips. Push notification when it's out. You'll be a very happy individual, and I highly encourage you to go down that path. Now, we will start with a gambling tidbit of the day, why gambling should be legal in Utah. (laughs) Yesterday, I expressed a great amount of consternation about my inability to stop betting the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, The captain going down with the sinking ship. I bet them through three games against the Montreal Canadiens in round two. Lost the first game, lost the second game, lost the third game yesterday. And I said, I'm sticking to my guns. I'm going to bet the Jets in game four. And I just know that this is what it is. It's not going to be fun. I'm not going to enjoy it. I know that there's some karmic force in the universe that just wants to pound my face into the ground in this series. And I'm comfortable with that. If I bet the Canadians in game four, I'll lose and I'll be even more angry. So I'll bet the Jets. I'll take them at plus 135. And I'll know that my ship is going down to the bottom of the ocean and I will drown upon it. And I'm comfortable with being that, okay? So last night's game four. Somehow games three and four are back-to-back because, again, there's a karmic force in the universe that despises me when it comes to betting the Jets in the Canadian series. So the Jets immediately go down 2-0. And I go, all right, fine. You know, I, knew, I know I'm going to lose this bet. I make it regardless. It is what it is. At least I won't have to be dragged through the muck and the mire And the emotionality of a game that's close, I can just kiss it goodbye and move on with my life. And then the Jets come storming back. Now it's 2-2. Now we're heading into overtime. And I go, there really is a karmic force in this universe that does not enjoy me betting on the Jets and the Canadians. So less than two minutes into overtime, Tyler Toffoli of Montreal, he scores on a one-timer. Game is over. I've lost my bet. Series is over. I've lost four straight bets. The Canadians now have not trailed in 437 minutes and 53 seconds of game time, over seven games. Second in NHL history right now behind the 1960 Montreal Canadiens. This is the team I've chosen to bet against. (laughs) A team that has not trailed for over seven games. Uh, And I was just sitting there watching them for four consecutive ones with money on the Jets. Uh, And now that phase of my life is over. I feel freed. I'm probably going to be happier moving forward. And I feel good about uh, the state of losing four consecutive bets so that I could free myself from these shackles that bind. So why gambling should be legal in Utah? Because eventually, in the end, it will save you from the worst part of yourself. And now a word from our sponsor. With your Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. We begin today's show where we left off yesterday, amongst the stars. Uh, The NBA had two games last night. The more entertaining game was Suns-Nuggets. Phenomenal home crowd 
for Phoenix in game one. People were just going ballistic. They seemed so happy to have playoff basketball there, meaningful games, a second-round series, all of that stuff. Uh, an incredible third-quarter blast from Phoenix where Chris Paul looks like he's been reborn and the shoulder's not as big of an issue. Devin Booker's doing his thing. DeAndre Ayton's making a star turn. They're getting contributions from all their depth pieces. Mikael Bridges played phenomenal last night. Campaign's doing stuff. Jay Crowder is banging home threes. Uh, it was a really enjoyable game. On the other side of that, you had Jokic, the MVP of the league. He's doing all the Jokic things. Uh, Michael Porter doing his stuff. Very enjoyable basketball game. Uh, and yet, that's not what we're going to talk about today. Because before that game occurred, the Nets and the Bucks played. A, a game that was not competitive but from a series perspective, has a lot of storylines that I want to discuss for today's show. So I'm going to read something from Zach Lowe of ESPN that was written before the beginning of this Bucks nets series. The contrast between these juggernauts is irresistible. The big city Nets bring the blue blood big three, a number one and number two overall pick who conspired to make the Nets their fiefdom and the number three pick who watched from afar before flexing his muscle to join up. All three are international superstars, commercial giants. The small market Midwestern Bucks bring their big three consisting of a little-known prospect from the Greek minor leagues picked 15th, the NBA's perennial most underrated player picked 17th, and a second-round pick who was once a throw-in to a deal centered around two top 10 picks named Brandon. End quote. The alignment of storylines going into this series, it was really stark. Uh, especially from a team-building perspective. This big market behemoth who cobbled together uh, this team with overwhelming star power against the small market team that did things the quote-unquote right way because they had to, because they have no other options, and they drafted in the teens and developed these players, one who's turned into an absolute superstar in Giannis, and then others who've turned into really great pieces uh, like Chris Middleton, and then... They made the one trade, the all-in trade, that they can't get an A-lister, but they can get a, a really good player, and they get Drew Holiday, and now this is their team. Uh, and it's a very interesting contrast in how you arrive in a similar place, a hopeful championship contender. So it's really neat uh, to see these two things go head-to-head. -head, you know, It's an irresistible kind of combination. Team-building contrasts, it's always a very enjoyable watch for fans. Uh, and on top of that, when you throw in immense, immense star power, you can't really beat the combination because this series, more than any series that exists in the playoffs and probably more than any series that will exist in the playoffs, it has star power uh, in great quantities. That enormous three of Brooklyn, Kyrie, Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Giannis Antetokounmpo on the Milwaukee end. Four just A-plus list stars. Uh, now, those who watched game one know that one of those is gone. James Harden, who pulled his hamstring less than a minute into that game and left. He did not play game two yesterday. We don't really know when he is going to return, which sucks for Brooklyn and it sucks for Harden. At the same time, uh, this is why you pile three superstars onto the same team, because one injury cannot cripple you in a way that it can cripple almost every other team in the league. There's not really another team that is in a similar spot to Brooklyn. No team has three super-duper stars on their roster. So one's gone. Okay, uh, well, Kevin Durant and Kyrie. Uh, 
carry the load, that's a pretty good fallback option to have, as we're seeing through these first two games. Zach Lowe of ESPN, he had a great line when it comes to Brooklyn and the construct of this team and why they're throwing these three superstars together, especially ones that rely so heavily upon isolation. Uh, He says, that's the whole point of the Nets. If switchy playoff defenses force us into the mud of isolation basketball, well, we are the best in that mud. And it makes a lot of sense because we know that playoff offense is a little bit different from regular season offense. And it's a more isolation-heavy environment for the most part. And if you have three players who are as good at playing isolation basketball as anyone on planet Earth, then it seems logical to assume that you will have a very good chance of surviving the playoffs and winning a championship. Uh, And in game one, there was a stark contrast between the two teams because Brooklyn wants to play that style. It it feeds into their strength. Even with Harden going out in the first minute, they go, well, yeah, we care, but we don't care because we still have Durant and Kyrie, two of the most gifted offensive superstars of their generation. And we're still just going to give it to them and they're going to create an isolation and no team is really going to be able to stop that or slow that down. That's their bet. And Milwaukee leaned into playing that style of basketball in game one, strangely enough, because that's not Milwaukee's strength. Milwaukee's strength is we get into the paint, we create from the inside out, and the two places we want to be is scoring at the rim and then feeding open three-point shots and canning those. That's how Milwaukee was so successful throughout the regular season and how they've been successful in years past. Game one, they lean into this isolation-heavy environment, and you're not going to beat Brooklyn doing that. It is impossible. There's no team that is equipped to go isolation versus isolation against even two out of the three stars that Brooklyn has. So game one, Brooklyn wins. Eight points, not as close as that score would indicate. And we come into game two last night, uh, and Milwaukee's at an interesting position because there's always this adversity that pops up in the playoffs, and you always have to take a look look at yourself and say how... Are we continually trying to improve? What have we learned about ourselves? And this is a process that goes back to before the playoffs begins for Milwaukee. I'm going to read a quote from Tim Bontemps of ESPN to kind of help illustrate this, this journey. When the Bucks chose to play things out over the final weekend of the regular season and ensure they would face the Miami Heat in the first round, they were chastised in many corners because they lined themselves up to take on the hardest possible opponent. How did the Bucks respond? By producing the most shocking result of the first round, sweeping the Heat, a team that more than a few people said would knock out Milwaukee for a second year in a row, and dominating the final three games of the series. End quote. So this fit into these neat storylines and, and the doing it the right way type idea. Uh, Milwaukee could have tried to avoid playing Miami in round one, a team they lost to last year in the bubble, a team they kind of got handled Uh, in the bubble last year. They only won one game, outed in five in the second round. And instead, Milwaukee leaned into it. They said, no, we're going to play our people. And if we have to play Miami round one, great. Uh, That's a good test for us. And they passed that test with flying colors. And so coming into this series, Milwaukee's saying, things are different this time around. Our past playoff failures, they're making us stronger. Uh, And we understand what our identity is. We score on the interior, and we feed three-point shots. And we trust that we can use this strategy and this identity to win a championship. So the story of the series coming into Milwaukee-Brooklyn, 
as I talked about on a show last week that I was really interested to see between these two teams. It was, how does Brooklyn defend the Bucks in the paint, the place they want to be, versus how does Milwaukee, how does Milwaukee defend Brooklyn, period? Uh, this isolation-heavy basketball that feeds three, now two, incredible isolation stars. Game two occurs yesterday. The Nets romp them. 125-86. Brooklyn wins. 2-0 series lead going back to Milwaukee. Both of these games have occurred without James Harden. So now the Bucks are staring adversity in the face again. Because what they thought they knew about themselves hasn't necessarily been true through the first two games of this series. There's a great tweet that came out of the first quarter of last night to illustrate this point uh, from Kevin O'Connor that I want to share with you. Here it is. Milwaukee's made and attempted shots in the first quarter of game two versus the Nets. Restricted area, zero for zero. Mid-range, five for ten. Three-pointers, three for ten. Milwaukee has gotten away from who they are. Not getting any pressure on the rim. Have to also credit Brooklyn for playing strong team D. End quote. So you see a team that has a strong identity play away from that. And indeed play into the strength of the opposition. Uh, Isolation heavy basketball. They're not getting to the rim. The one place that they thought they could get and that Brooklyn would struggle to defend. That, That didn't happen at all within the first quarter of last night. When the Nets ran out to a big lead, and it felt like it was already over by the time it was midway through the second quarter. That's problematic. Uh, And and for the Bucs, I empathize a lot with the situation they're in because it's a very sad, sinking feeling when you value yourself as a contender and then you're faced with a very familiar position of not being enough, not being that. Uh, So they have to look in the mirror and say, what adjustments do we need to make? What adjustments can we make? how much of this identity that we've built, how much of it is sustainable, uh, and how much of what we're currently doing needs to be thrown out the window. Uh, There's a lot of questions, a lot of soul-searching that Milwaukee has to do going into Game 3 in Milwaukee. The series is not over by any means. Just because Brooklyn has won both of the first two games easily, it doesn't mean it's over. We've seen plenty of series throughout the history of the NBA where the first two games go according to plan for the home team, and everybody goes, ah, it's just over. This team has no idea what to do. And suddenly we're in a competitive series. You know, A series doesn't start until a road team loses. That's the old adage. We haven't seen that yet. But we have seen Milwaukee uh, go through a bit of an identity crisis. It's hard when your actual identity crumbles a bit. And through two games, you know, the Bucks, they've been exchanging what they were during the regular season, what they were against Miami for these heavy isolation possessions against Brooklyn, the team who wants to do that, um, refusing to go and to get into the paint as they did in the first quarter of last night, and then missing the majority of their three-pointers, which I'll talk about later, uh, but is also a really strong piece of the identity of the Milwaukee Bucks. So that's where Milwaukee's at. Uh, And again, the soul-searching process is occurring now. And whatever they are going to come out with in game three, that presumably will be their very best effort from uh, uh, an actual effort perspective and from a X's and O's, what do we need to change? What type of basketball do we need to play type effort? 
on the other side, uh, it's the star power. Uh, it just jumps off the screen, even when it's two out of the three with Harden sitting. Because when Kevin Durant and when Kyrie Irving are coming at you with both guns drawn, I mean, there's not a lot to do. In the first quarter last night, that combination outscores the Bucks by themselves, 22 to 19. Uh, again, a quarter that the Nets start creating this big gap that just stays there the rest of the game. Durant finishes the game with 32 points, six assists, four rebounds. He's 12 for 18 from the field. He's four for six from three-point land. That's a Kevin Durant performance. Gives you everything, gives you 30-plus points, and on shooting splits that you go, how are you doing this, you know? How do you do this every single game? Uh, and it's just what we expect and what we continually get from probably the greatest scoring forward of his generation. Then Kyrie. At times the sidekick, at times the lead score, at time, I mean, who knows what is what with this team. That's the bonus of having so many stars on the team. Nobody's necessarily a sidekick. Nobody's necessarily the lead guy. Kyrie, he comes out with 22 points, six assists, five rebounds last night. He's nine for 17 from the field. He's four for eight from three-point land. The combination of these players, it's the epitome of another adage that great offense will always trump great defense. You saw that on display yesterday. Uh, there were certain plays that I just felt bad for the Bucks because they have great defenders. And indeed, when you look at Giannis and Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, you say that's about as good of a threesome as you could find to try and slow down what Brooklyn is trying to do with these gifted offensive players. And it just doesn't matter if they're cooking. Kyrie drills a step back with Giannis underneath him. He catches the ball in full flight coming across midcourt and just suddenly stops on a dime at the three-point line with Giannis by him. And to Giannis's credit, he's much bigger and stronger and bulkier than Kyrie. And this stop that's on a dime, he adjusts well. And he still stops and gets a handout. Kyrie stops so fast. And what looks like a play where he's running full speed to try to get to the rim is now suddenly a shot that's out of his hands, a three-pointer that's swishing through as Giannis has still defended about as well as you could expect from an NBA player. And Kyrie's running off down the floor. And I'm watching it saying, this is just unfair. Uh, there's nothing you could ever do against a play like that. Something we've seen throughout the course of Kyrie's career. When he truly gets rolling and he's shaking and baking and showing off that handle that's as tasty and as good as anybody's handle in the league and that shooting touch that is the exact same thing as good as anybody in the league and he gets to all the spots on the floor that he wants and he knows that he can get to and score from and he's hitting these high floating bank shots or he's finishing with reverse layups or he's just canning these threes that come off of stop, start, stop, start. Now a shot's up and you don't even know what hit you. It's unfair. That's what you get when you have a star uh, like Kyrie. Then Durant's doing similar stuff within the same game. He's drilling jumper after jumper after jumper. He's 12 for 18 from the field. And it seemed like 10 of those field goals were just, give me the ball up top. I'm going to jab step. I'm going to make a move. I'm going to get to the elbow. I'm going to shoot a contested 18 foot jumper. And I will swish every single one. Doesn't matter if Giannis is on me. Doesn't matter if Drew Holiday's up and underneath me. It doesn't matter how good of defense you play against this. I will score and I will score at a very efficient rate uh, with volume. His twisting layup that he has right near the end of the third quarter, I mean, what do you do against it? 
He gets the ball at the top of the arc. The entire Milwaukee defense is set. He makes a move. He's suddenly driving through four defenders, essentially, and wrapping his 550-foot arm from one side of the basket to the other, twisting it up off the backboard. It's in. The crowd's going crazy. Brooklyn's running away with it. They can now just bench all their starters because the fourth quarter is meaningless. This is what you get when you have star power like this. James Harden, an MVP in basketball, one of the very best players that this league has to offer, can sit. And you can still steamroll an opponent that a lot of people think is one of the very best teams in basketball because you have two other people that can do exactly what Harden brings to the table. Score relentlessly and create out-of-isolation possessions. It's really freaky to watch this team when they get rolling uh, because one person will do something. Durant will do one of these jumpers I'm talking about, and I say, man, that's the most unstoppable offensive player in basketball. You just can't. A team with Durant, what can you do? And then the next possession, Kyrie comes down, and he stops on a dime, and a three's going through the net, and I go, hmm, yeah, that's the most unstoppable offensive player in basketball. What can you do? They can just give him the ball. And then in a game when James Harden is playing, the next possession, they come down, and James Harden is doing his halty stutter step, and he's suddenly at the rim, and he's taking a foul, and he's laying it up. And I go, that's the most unstoppable player in basketball. It's something we really haven't ever seen. Uh, this level of star power and these overlapping skill sets that somehow work in conjunction with one another. The big question when Brooklyn got pieced together, one that I had and pretty much everybody in basketball had, was how do these three people work when there's only one ball? Three people who always want to have the ball. Uh, Kyrie and Durant, they've shown in the past they can play off it. Kyrie did that with LeBron and, and won a championship. Kyrie or uh, Kevin Durant has done that with Russell Westbrook in Oklahoma City when they were a very successful team. And then he did that when he joined the Warriors and, and did that very successfully with Steph and Clay and Draymond. Uh, and Harden never really had to do that, though he did have to piecemeal a fit together with Chris Paul later and Russell Westbrook later, but that was more of a take-your-turn-I'll-take-mine type of offense. So when they got together, we go, there's one ball, how is this going to work? Uh, and as it turns out, it doesn't really matter when you combine this level of star power. And the fit has been, I don't want to say seamless, but it's been pretty close to that because each have understood how to work with one another in the games that they all play together, which haven't been a lot. And when one is sitting out, you just roll the ball out and say, Durant, go get me tw uh, 30. Kyrie, go get me 30. And we can go from there. It's really, uh, truly an incredible thing to watch on a nightly basis, this level of star power on one team. So we know that about the Nets. We've seen that uh, throughout the first two games of this series. Uh, and there are other storylines threaded throughout this, as always. So I go through on yesterday's show about Game 7 and Dallas against the Clippers. The main story is Kawhi versus Luka because that's just what's fun. And it's why I want to watch basketball. It's because I love watching stars play at their very best. And the margins, it's other people that comprise that. Uh, and in this series so far, the margins haven't necessarily mattered as much because Brooklyn has overwhelmed them, especially in Game 2. But there are still things that if you're looking at, you say, how can this series be different moving forward? Uh, if you're Milwaukee, you say, where's Chris Middleton? We need our second or third best player, depending on your opinion. We need him because in game one, he scores 13 points on, 16, or on six for 23 shooting. Not acceptable. 
In game two, he follows that up with 17 points on seven for 20 shooting. Again, not really acceptable. He's now 13 for 43 in the series against a defense that we thought Milwaukee could exploit. Uh, And Milwaukee has to go about their business on offense in a much different manner than Brooklyn, as I've been saying. They need contributions across the board because they're not isolation heavy and they don't, at their very best, they don't want to be, despite the fact they fall into that trap through two games. They need contributions across the board, especially from their three best players. They need Giannis to lean into his strengths on offense, Middleton and Holiday to do the same, and then top that off with their depth three-point shooting. That's been Milwaukee's formula. That's what they have not gotten so far in this series. On the Brooklyn side of things, uh, their depth has really been able to shine. When your stars are going off to the extent they've gone off in one and two, and Milwaukee looks powerless to stop them, that frees up everybody else, uh, liberates them to do the things that they're best at. You don't need them to be a star. You don't need them to do everything on the floor. You just say, do what you're best at, and then we can try to cover up whatever you are the weakest at. That is how you survive in the playoffs. And for Brooklyn, Blake Griffin, a man who was a walking corpse four months ago, has somehow risen from the grave. And he's playing this integral role for the Nets. He looks rejuvenated. Uh, Game one, he steps in with Harden's absence, and he plays... 35 minutes in that game, which if you watched Blake on the Pistons earlier this year, just asking him to play 35 minutes seemed like double the amount of time he could physically be on the court hobbling around. He looked like he was 413 years old. He he couldn't jump higher than me, a a man with a probably a four inch vertical. And that's fine being generous to myself. This was Blake Griffin earlier this season. And then he's jumping in in game one. He's got 35 minutes on his Stat line, he's got 18 points, 14 rebounds, three assists, two steals. He's four, he's four for nine from three-point lamp. I mean, who the hell expected any of that to be happening? He doubles down on that in game two because Durant and Kyrie are flying around and they're freeing up everybody else to do anything. And Blake is one of the people who is there doing stuff. Flying put-back dunk in the first quarter. He comes running from the three-point line and it's looking like something uh, approximating the old Blake Griffin. He's diving for loose balls in that quarter, something I can't even recall him ever doing in his career. He's like this hustle glue guy. He punctuates his night with this dunk in the second quarter over Giannis, where he catches it on the wing and he goes flying in. And a dude who we were making fun of four months ago because he never dunked is now stuffing it on Giannis, one of the very best defensive players in basketball, and running down the court and chest bumping. And I'm sitting at home watching it going, what, what is this? And where does this come from? And yet it follows a familiar theme of championship contenders and how you win a championship. The players that swing championships. Uh, these margin players. And a lot of times they're these reclamation style projects that just come out of the blue. And if you pull everyone earlier in the season, you would laugh at the idea of a player like Blake Griffin playing an integral role on a championship team. You look back in the past, and I can think off the top of my head when I was planning for the show, I go, yeah, J.R. Smith. Who would have ever expected that dude to play on the 2016 Cavs and be an integral piece of a championship-winning team that took down the 73-win Warriors? A dude who in the third quarter of Game 7, is hitting these immense threes alongside Kyrie Irving to keep Cleveland in the game. Who would have ever expected J.R. Smith to be that? Who would have ever expected somebody like Steven Jackson, 
a dude that everybody scoffed at and laughed at and just seemed like kind of a crazy person. He's there uh, playing a huge role on the 2003 Spurs. Birdman on the Miami Heat, who was a cool story when he's with the Nuggets. He's got all the tattoos and he's dunking and he's flapping around, but he just seemed like kind of a, a sideshow and one that you wouldn't necessarily want if you were trying to play winning basketball. And yet there he is running pick and rolls with LeBron and dunking and giving them defense and playing a reasonable role for a two-time championship team. These are the marginal players that comprise championship contenders. You don't necessarily know where they are going to come from. And yet when you see it play out, you go, "Mm, this checks a box for a team that needs to win a championship. It's what we're seeing with Blake Griffin right now. It's what we're seeing with a lot of depth pieces on Brooklyn. That, yes, their job is made easier by what their stars do and the amount of gravitational pull that they force a team to respond to what they're doing with. But you got a lot of pieces on Brooklyn that are doing things right now. Joe Harris is playing good basketball. Bruce Brown, Nicholas Claxon. I mean, even Mike James and Landry Shamet are doing things. You just need this style of player to fill in the gaps outside of what your stars bring to the table. Uh, And again, on Brooklyn... The gaps are much smaller, especially when they're all healthy. Because when you have Irving and Durant and Harden, there's not a lot of other things a team like that is going to need uh, in order to win a championship. And that's really come to the forefront of the first two games of this series. Last but not least, as I end almost every single episode that involves me talking about a basketball game in 2021, I've gone through all of this stuff. And all of it is important, and all of it is meaningful, and all of it means something in the context of who wins and who loses. And yet in 2021, uh, a really big piece of every game is always the three-point shooting battle. And if there's a big gap between those two things, sometimes it can be as simple as that. Despite the fact that stars are balling out and role pieces are balling out, and this person's shooting terribly, and this person is also shooting terribly, three-point shooting is so valuable in today's NBA that when there's a big gap between how one team performs and how the other performs, sometimes you can look at that and say, if this is just, this gap is closed, what does the game look like now moving forward? Sometimes it's as simple as that. Uh, And this could be one of those series. If you're Milwaukee and you're looking for a silver lining and you're saying, how can we be better in game three? How can we win and and suddenly turn this into a series? Game one, Brooklyn goes 15 for 39 from three-point land. Milwaukee, one of the better three-point shooting teams for efficiency and volume in the regular season. They go six for 30 in game one. That's nine made threes. The gap between there, 27 points. Pretty hard to shrink that gap. Game two, it's even worse. Brooklyn goes 21 for 42 from three-point land. 50%. Set a franchise record for three-point makes in a playoff game. Milwaukee follows up their performance in game one with a similar performance. Eight for 27 from three-point land. Two great three-point shooting nights for Brooklyn. Uh, two abysmal shooting nights for Milwaukee. Game two, that's 13 threes. The difference between those two teams. 39 points. Uh, it's not as simple as just saying, well, we just need to shoot better from three. There's a lot more things that are showing in the series for Milwaukee that they need to change. But this is a really big piece of it. This is always a big piece of every single game in today's NBA. Uh, Tonight's series that's kicking off that I'm going to be recapping tomorrow, the Clippers, the Jazz, it's going to be a huge part 
Uh, and I'll be here talking about that tomorrow. So we go back for game three of Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and we're going to see what adjustments are going to be made. Uh, we're going to see this immense star plower on display, something that I just really can't get enough of watching. Uh, and we're going to see how the three-point battle goes and if Milwaukee can shrink that gap and what they can do to minimize this star power gap that currently exists. Uh, and after game three, uh, we're going to have an answer of whether or not this is going to be a series moving forward or whether or not Brooklyn is going to be just steamrolling into the next round. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.